Welcome to the Addiction Psychologist podcast brought to you by the Society of Addiction Psychology. Before we get started today, we wanted to take a few seconds to introduce ourselves and the mission of the podcast. My name is Dr. Noah Emery. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Brown University and a psychologist at Bradley Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. My name is Sam Acuff. Uh, I'm a clinical psychology doctoral student at the University of Memphis. Um, we're going to be your hosts uh, for the podcast, and, and we're really excited about uh, what, what we've been working on over the, uh, the past couple months related to the podcast and the, and the interviewees that, that we're bringing to it. Totally agree. Totally agree. I'm really excited about the effort that we're putting together here. Some of you might remember a similar effort that the society brought to you a few years ago. Uh, they were the live podcasts. Uh, they were a little bit more like a, um, a webinar uh, hosted by Dr. Bruce Lees. I was involved in that effort at the time. And what we wanted to do now was to bring a continuation of that effort and expand it out a little bit more um, to make it a podcast that would be downloadable uh, for those of you that are interested in that uh, who have time constraints, so forth and so on. And so we're excited about the new direction and we hope that you are as well. Absolutely. Uh, there, there were some wonderful interviews on, on um, the older version of, of this podcast and um, really excited to see that continue and also expand. And so we want to highlight real quick why we're actually doing this podcast just to give listeners an idea uh, of what to expect. And so the purpose of the podcast is to provide a platform for clinicians, researchers, and policymakers uh, in our field of addiction to highlight relevant work, answer you know, common questions that come up, um, and disseminate information just to, to generally enhance treatment and recovery for, uh, for, the, for the people that, that, um, you know, that we're doing this for. Exactly. And also, I think it's important to note that there's a, there's a pretty wide um, practice uh, and science gap in the field of psychology, um, and especially in addiction psychology. And so we really wanted to provide a platform for dissemination and discussion that complements more traditional outlets, but also has a wider catch for people who might be able to interact with it, individuals in the community, people interested in recovery, policymakers. Uh, usually those things are kind of in separate silos of conventions and, right. and, and things like that. And so we really kind of wanted to have it all in one place for anybody who's interested in these topics. Um, and that's especially true because right now in uh, COVID-19 pandemic times, a lot of these conferences are kind of falling by the wayside mm -hmm. right now. And so it's especially important that hot off the presses research, this has an avenue by which to get to the people who are interested in it, other than another PDF that I have to download and not read later. <laughs> because if I have any more of those, I don't know what I'll do. Right, right. Uh, and so uh, just to orient people to how it's gonna work, so for each episode, we're gonna be interviewing a member of the field about their work and discussing its applied relevance where that's relevant. And we're also gonna provide opportunities for students to share their work um, as it goes on um, either that be in the clinical domain or research. Right, absolutely. Um, and so for now, the plan is to, to release an episode a month and, and things might develop a little bit. We might find new ways to hi highlight people's work. Um, but these, these episodes are going to be available on the Society of Addiction Psychology website. Um, we're going to make them available on Apple Podcasts and also uh, hopefully on Spotify. So 
uh, we would really love to receive feedback from anyone out there um, listening about the, the episodes that we produce um, in addition to you know topics or interviewees that you'd be interested in, in hearing from or just generally ideas for episodes and where to, where to take uh, the podcast. So uh, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at adpsychpodcast. That's A-D-D-P-S-Y-C-H podcast um, on Twitter. Uh, we would really love to hear from you. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. We really are interested in what you are interested in. Um, also, it's important to note um, that the views expressed on this podcast are our personal opinions or that of the interviewees involved, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Society of Addiction Psychology or the parent society, the American Psychological Association. All right, for today's podcast, we're lucky to have Dr. Brandon Bergman on today. And we thought that his work was particularly relevant right now because a lot of his research focuses on online recovery communities and digital recovery support services. And with the large pivot to online recovery supports that's happening right now due to um, reductions in in-person meetings, shutdowns, and all of that that's happening with COVID, we thought this was a particularly important time to discuss what these things are and how they can be helpful for those uh, that engage with them. So uh, Brandon is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He's an associate director of the Recovery Research Institute that's housed in the Center for Addiction Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is a Harvard teaching hospital. Um, he's heavily involved in the Recovery Research Institute's effort for disseminating science through the Recovery Research Bulletin. All of those things can be found at recoveryanswers.org. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair to say. I, I, do, I do really help supervise, manage, and, and, and get the, the bulletin out. Um, and before I forget, so it's, it's like a beautiful day here in Boston, which is rare, at least lately. So I've, I've got my, um, my door open here. And uh, if you hear any like random construction noises, um, that's what they are. And if they get in the way, you'll, you'll let me know. Uh, otherwise, though, we can keep going because I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the fresh air. No worries. I got your back oh like goodness. a chiropractor, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, we think it's important to hear a little bit about the background when we have experts on. And so we're hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and training before we launch into any specific research that we want to talk about today. Sure. Um, so I, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I got my PhD at a school called Nova Southeastern University um, down in South Florida. Um, and then from there, I, uh, I got to Mass General Hospital. Um, through internship. That's right. I did my psychology internship uh, at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Um, and then uh, during my internship is where I really started to, I, I was, for a while, I was not necessarily sure whether I wanted to go more clinical or more research um, uh, or some combination therein, right? I, I really liked both. Um, and I was really interested in, in how science could inform clinical practice and um, and uh, policy making as well. Um, and so when I um, was on internship, uh, I started thinking about what a postdoc might look like if it were half clinical and half research, right? And so um, I started talking, I was very lucky that I had some people that I could talk to, one of which uh, is uh, named John Kelly, who ended up being my postdoctoral mentor and is now a mentor on my K23 and 
senior colleague and just somebody um, who I uh, greatly respect and just so feel so fortunate to be working with. And then I also had a clinical supervisor during my internship who was helping supervise me uh, uh, essentially on an elective um, where I was doing a few hours a week in the adolescent and young adult addiction treatment program at Mass General Hospital. So I was able to create with them a half clinical, half research postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and, and that was really where my training in addiction treatment and uh, addiction research uh, took off. Um, and in terms of my clinical training, I think the, the, the only thing that is helpful to provide context is that I do have this background in specifically in the treatment of youth with substance, uh, youth with, uh, substance use and other co-occurring psychiatric disorders and their families, uh, so especially their parents. And I have um, uh, a certification in uh, the delivery of um, adole the adolescent community reinforcement approach. I guess just the last piece to mention in terms of kind of my professional background and training is as I've gone along, I focused more and more on research and, and science and, and that being my day-to-day -day job. And the, the, the science is clinical science. I, I consider myself to be a, a clinical scientist. Um, like I would, I would introduce myself as a clinical psychologist and scientist. Um, so my, 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 my research is clinical and at the same time, I no longer do clinical work at Mass General Hospital. After my postdoc, I was a staff psychologist for a couple of years in the same treatment program where I trained. Um, and but now I'm, my time is spent 100% at Mass General Hospital on research. And uh, I do continue to do clinical work, however, in, in private practice um, in Boston and, and uh, belong to a peer supervision group where myself and some other psychologists in private practice, we, we help provide supervision um, to each other. So that that's... That's really my professional background and training in a nutshell. So it sounds like you got sort of the, the best of both worlds, some research and some, and some clinical work. Yeah, no, I feel, I feel very fortunate. I don't hear about that too often. Um, if I, I really um, would advocate um, for more postdoctoral fellowships, uh, the extent to which it's possible to create those sorts of opportunities for folks like me, um, who are clinically trained and really enjoy clinical work um, and at the same time see myself making uh, um, also a big impact doing science. And I sort of determined as I went along that my best opportunity to do the work that I, that, that, that was um, sort of came most naturally to me and, I, and that where I could make the biggest impact was science, uh, but I still love clinical work. And so, right. yeah, I just, I feel very fortunate that I was able to, with, my, the, the, the trust really and the help of my of my clinical supervisor during internship and, and with John Kelly who I had reached out to um, and just started uh, uh, um, scheduling meetings with him and um, sort of conceptualizing what a half clinical half research postdoc might look like um, I mean without their trust and belief uh, in me and and wanting to really help support my development as a professional in both of these areas that wouldn't have been possible for the most part these, these kinds of half clinical, half research positions, they're not, they're not so widely available. Um, but I, I can just tell you for me, I found that 50-50 that split during my postdoc to be um, just such an amazing uh, way to develop professionally and for me to get a sense of um, how people, um, uh, especially how young people, um, do in treatment and recovery and what are some of the ways that we're doing a good job in terms of engaging them, but really more so what are some of the ways in which we need to improve, right? right. In terms of engaging Ooh. young people. And I'm not sure, like, even if let's say I had 
uh, always had this notion that I was going to end up being a clinical scientist like I am now, mainly. I did not have that idea, but let's say I did. Um, I don't think I would have been able to really um, develop the sorts of ideas and interests that I have that I, that I think are, are, are attuned to the real life um, needs of, of, of young adults and their families. I just, I just think clinical work and, 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 and learning um, in the moment with patients together um, what they were looking for, what they needed, what they didn't feel like they were getting from traditional treatment models. Without that, I just, I, I don't think that I would be as excited about the research that I'm doing. So for me, they, they, they went hand in hand and I'm very fortunate to have been able to had an opportunity to do both during yeah. the postdoctoral fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a, it's a, it's a lucky thing to have. And, and I, from what I understand, a lot of people end up going one direction or the other. And, and the fact that you're still actively engaged in, in seeing clients, I think is, uh, is really special as well. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you for giving, thank you for giving that overview, uh, Brandon. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the research that's come from some of this. Yeah. So during my postdoc, I focused a lot on the life uh, stage of emerging adulthood, um, which I would imagine there are, there are folks who are listening who do know. But for those for those who don't, sometimes people you think about emerging adulthood as like synonymous with young adulthood, and um, I think we could think about it that way uh, in some context. Although I think about emerging adulthood as it was a, it was a term slash concept coined by Jeff Arnett um, at Clark University, who's a developmental psychologist. Um, and it's, it's not really an age range so much, although we do have to operationalize it in studies. It's 18, lately we've been operationalizing as 18 to 29. Um, but, but when I was a postdoc 2012 to 2014, we really think about it's 18 to 24, 18 to 25. But it's not meant as an age range so much as it's meant to capture a set of developmental uh, processes, really, and, and kind of developmental progress. And, and like I said, a, a stage of the life course that falls between adolescence and established adulthood where people are, um, young people are um, leaving home for the first time, either because they've gotten a job or they've gone off uh, to college, where they're um, forming sort of their first uh, established romantic relationships, kind of figuring out what they're going to do in terms of their career or their vocation. Um, and, and from a psychological perspective, really kind of um, getting a, a sense of their values and their identity and what's important to them, right? And so when I say emerging adulthood, I'm really thinking about those sorts of concepts. And so early on, those are the, the aspects I studied, and in particular, understanding how emerging adults do um, in mutual help organizations, other kinds of treatment and recovery support services. And I was especially important, although I do a little bit less of this work now, but I hope to get back to it in thinking about how co-occurring psychiatric disorders hmm. uh, might influence how folks with substance use disorder uh, do in these recovery support services. Um, so that, that was what, what it was like um, in my postdoc. And then that, that work, I became really, really interested in trying to understand um, what were the gaps? You know, we were, we just, as a field, we have a really hard time engaging young people in general in treatment and recovery sports services um, for a, a series of reasons. And, and we could certainly get into that. Um, and, and, and so one of the things I've been trying to think about is how, how can we do a better job, A, engaging young people in, in recovery sports services that might be um, might, might help them um, kind of initiate and sustain recovery. And, and, and by recovery, I think about recovery as, as a process, um, not so much as an outcome, right? So just for folks who are listening, everybody sort of thinks, defines recovery differently. If I say recovery, I'm talking about 
a process or set of processes that um, uh, lead to improvements in substance use and other uh, aspects of well-being and quality of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I tend to think about recovery as a set of processes, improving coping skills, changing social networks, motivation. Go, Sam, you have a question there. Yeah, I was going to ask what other, what other life areas would you throw in there? Oh, well, so in addition to substance use, we certainly look at just sort of uh, their, their overall mental health, right? Depression, anxiety. Um, we'd also look at um, overall quality of life, right? Just like, how are they, fu- how, how, how are they functioning? Um, are, are there ways in which, there, are their relationships, are, are, are their perceptions of the relationships improving? Is their ability to engage in society, either via work or via school, is that improving? Um, and just sort of the degree to which they're experiencing um, stress. Now, I, I think we could also get into other kind of higher order, longer term. I, I, this is a bit of a longer conversation where I think recovery processes um, and what those outcomes um, of recovery might be would differ depending mm-hmm. on where somebody's at in, in their recovery right. process, right? So somebody earlier on might be focusing more on substance use um, and, and how to kind of cope with anxiety and depression day to day. Whereas as folks move, further along, it might be more about like a sense of purpose, sense mm-hmm. of direction in one's life, right? And sort of starts to get into some of this higher order, um, maybe even more existential stuff. But within the first year, right, uh, I would say it's those things, you know, it's substance use, but me- mental health, um, and then functioning, right? How well are, do folks feel like they're able to engage in school or work or mm-hmm. some of the other um, goal-directed activities they want to be involved in? Yeah, it's about, it's um, about building, right? Like a life right and kind of filling that stuff out right that it's 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 i think it's important right like i think a lot of people when they hear recovery they think abstinence yeah right and and it's yeah. and it's it's complicated right and it and it's varying depending on where you are in your journey and where you are in your life stage right so like young adult recovery um or, or emerging adult recovery might be systematically different than somebody who's like an older adult's recovery just depending on the type of things they've accumulated over life and the things that are absent from the life that they want to live currently. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I always like to make sure to keep in the front of my mind as uh, in terms of the science that I'm doing is we measure substance use in a lot of ways as the primary outcome because it's kind of like the easiest thing to measure mm. um, in terms of yeah. it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a tangible behavior that we can ask people about and or measure via talk screens. Some of these other aspects of recovery are harder to measure, um, but the change in substance use, whether it's abstinence or, or reductions in substance use or what have you, that's not the ends, right? That's a means to an end. People yeah. aren't reducing their substance use or abstaining from substances purely to do that. They're doing that as a vehicle to, as you yeah. said, Noah, to improve their lives. Yeah, most people I talk to um, who are interested in recovery, love getting high right still it's not that they suddenly fell out of love with it Mm. right it's that all of the extra stuff that comes with it gets in the way from them living the life that they want to live and so that's why i think when we think about outcomes of recovery again i don't think of recovery as an outcome i think of it as a process and a process but these outcomes i think for me i i like to make sure i'm always thinking about the the non-abstinence or the outcomes beyond abstinence um now, all that said, right, so like in terms of my research, I think about what are some innovative ways that young people are already engaging 
um, in, in kind of recovery processes or, or things that we could leverage to enhance uh, their, their engagement with recovery. Um, and so where that led me was to, to be thinking about digital recovery sports services. Um, and in particular for me, like there are lots of digital recovery sports services. And for, for the listeners, I, I want to um, differentiate um, technology-based interventions, right? So, so these are like psychosocial treatments that are delivered uh, via the web or smartphone application or something like this, where an individual, it's sort of a computer to person, um, potentially um, uh, a framework where we have, so the, the, one of the better examples is called the therapeutic education system. Um, it is a technology-based intervention created by Lisa, Lisa Marsh and, and, and colleagues. Um, and it was adapted from the community reinforcement approach, which is that a treatment that I talked about at the very beginning that I have in terms of the adolescent version, I have certification. Um, I'm a certified you give a, a, therapist. A, a one or two sentence summary, community uh, reinforcement. Uh, yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's based on the idea that um, people continue to use substances because they're like really rewarding and reinforcing for people, right? Uh, which, which makes a whole lot of sense. And, and then what happens though is that becomes their go-to way to get reinforcement and reward and to also um, reduce negative affect, right? And other kinds of negative feelings. So we, 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 we tend to do things in our life as, as my clinical supervisor, Marty Kane uh, at, at Mass General, um, I, I used to say, we, we really do things in our life for two reasons. One is to get something we want and the other is to avoid something we don't want. Um, oh yeah. So, I mean, it's a very behavioral way of thinking about right. things, but I think in many ways that's um, the theory underlying the community reinforcement approach. And so the idea is in order to help people um, move, and then, and then so, okay, so just to take one quick step back. And so the first step for, for community reinforcement approach and the adolescent version ACRA is to do a functional analysis. Um, so that we can understand what the function of the substance using behavior is. Because for everybody, it serves some function, whether that's helping address anxiety or depression or helping them uh, have fun and, the, you know, helping them um, uh, uh, be comfortable with friends. Right. Or, right? So, or whatever. There's, there's so many different reasons why people um, uh, drink or take drugs, take other drugs. So the, the idea is to use a functional analysis to establish a roadmap of what is the function that substance use serves? Because that helps identify real, this is the way I think about it, although I don't know that acrotherapists would say it just like this, but the functional analysis helps us identify real life human needs that folks with substance use disorder have. And so then what, what I think is, unless we find, we, we help patients find healthier ways to meet those real yeah. life human needs, they got no shot at remission, right? Or recovery as it were, right? So, so that is really the goal of hmm. uh, the community reinforcement approach or the adolescent version is, is and that's where the, the community piece comes in, is that we're helping them um, leverage and capitalize on all the different things that are available in their community, whether it's activities, other people that they could lean on for social support, fret, uh, sort of new friends that they could make. It could even be, for example, attending mutual health organizations. It's not, it's not necessarily, the community reinforcement approach is not necessarily wedded <laughs> to cognitive behavioral orientation so much as it is community-based uh, social, um, and, and it could also be sort of individual activities that are rewarding for the person, right? With this idea that uh, uh, treatment, that the main goal of treatment is to help folks find healthier ways in their community to meet the needs um, or the function that was being served by substance use. So that, that's sort of the community reinforcement approach in a nutshell. Um, 
and so the, the therapeutic edge, and then there are a series of skills, right? That, that um, uh, as the therapist, we, we help the patient develop and then help them figure out ways that, they, that might be hard for them to apply those skills as, as, as the therapists uh, that are listening know, right? Like helping patients develop a skill is a whole different ball game than helping them implement it and understanding what emotions might be getting in the way Ooh. of them uh, putting it into practice. Um, and then Especially when you're talking it. about young people. Oh, t- totally. And then, and then sticking with it, right? Because there are so many, mm. um, especially their social lives. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, their social lives are so much more reinforcing than anything that we can provide, right? Right. Oh, um, yeah. So just with the therapy, as an example, to come back to the therapeutic education system, it's teaching the same skills, right, as, as the community reinforcement approaches, just via um, a kind of self-directed set of online modules where they're learning communications. So they learn how to do a functional analysis, and then, they, and then they're learning about um, pro-social activities. That's the, the sort of fancy term that, that, that can help meet those needs, right, uh, that substance use was meeting. And then they're developing, we're, we're, as therapists, you're helping them develop communication skills so they communicate to the different people that are important to them in their lives to help them get what they need there. Problem solving skills, assertive drink and drug refusal, all, all, all these kinds of things. Um, and then last but not least, it's to help them get a sense of when they start um, engaging in some of these other uh, alternative, right, rewarding activities, is to help them think about, you know, for the most part, and this is sort of an overgeneralization, but I, I think it's, uh, on average, it's true where substance use um, provides lots and lots of short-term positives, but then a bunch of long-term negatives as well, right? Um, where, and for young people, it's a lot, more, it's a lot easier for them to, to think about it like that. But then when it comes to the kind of healthier activities, like spending time with, 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 with friends playing sports, for example, um, that might not feel as good in the short term, but it's going to feel better over the long term. Mm. Yeah. And the goal is sort of to have it feel good in the short term as well, right? <laughs> but, but, but it's just not going to provide the same sort of transcendent reward that, no. that a drug is, right? It's, no. just, it's just not possible. Um, yeah, I like to think of it like uh, substance use, right? It's like it's certain reward that happens immediately, right? <laughs> it's um, very predictable. So like, I, use right. it, like, I know like exactly how long until I'm going to get like this dose of goodness all up in my life. Whereas all this other stuff is like, it's delayed, it's variable, right? Like not everybody experiences, you know, some of the negative consequences that come from substance use that are like physical health or legal consequences or these things. And all that stuff's delayed and variable. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, yeah. I need to discount. That, Maybe right? I'll pass my test, you know? Maybe yeah. I'll get to internship. Yeah, right? Like those kind of things. Or, or just like, or like, you know, I know some people have had, you know, caught a case from this. Right. And now they are on probation or parole or incarcerated mm-hmm. or homeless now and these types of things. But that doesn't happen instantly. Right. Not like the goodness that happens. Right. The reward that happens. And so mm-hmm. it's about supplanting or finding alternatives. Right. That fill out their life when they remove this thing that are going to give them close approximations to those types of things. Right. Where, uh, but, but avoid those negative consequences. An example That's, I can use yeah, all the time is like exactly. exercise. Right. Like yeah. we exercise. Like nobody's family ever gets on them. And it's like, man, we got to talk about your exercise. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe there's like specific examples where that is true, but it's like right. so less frequent than people's family stepping in. And be like, we got to talk about your drug use. Hmm. Right. Like, yeah, especially yeah, when you're yeah. talking about teenagers, like the ones I work with, like, like I know 0% patients, families that are like, some drug use is cool. You know, like, um, <laughs> but for, 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 yeah, for, for teen, for, for, for adolescents, right. Uh, and, 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 
with developing brains. That, that question yeah. is a little bit more cut and dry. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, no, and um, yeah, and, and so, yeah, so that's sort of the, the, the underlying theory, exactly what we're talking about, of, of why um, the community reinforcement approach is, is helpful. And there's lots of data, especially for young people, um, to suggest that that's true. And then so the therapeutic education system is a sort of a technological or digital adaptation of that treatment, right? So, so I differentiate that as an example from a digital recovery support service, which as an example there would be like an online recovery support meeting, right? Which is a, a, free, a freely available meeting. It's not necessarily an intervention that's being delivered, but it's something freely available um, in the community that the goal is not necessarily, okay, here's exactly what you're going to do each session. That's a, that's a, and, and here's exactly the outcomes. That's the, the, those are treatments. A recovery support service, in my mind, is really targeting these processes that are meant to, get, that are meant to give rise to longer-term or sustained changes in substance use and, and other aspects of quality of life. That's, that's why I kind of use – that's why I wanted to define that term um, recovery because treatments – are not necessarily meant to um, enhance recovery processes. Sometimes they are, right? Sometimes they are, uh, but 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 not always. Um, and so yeah. usually they're treat- focused on sim- symptom reduction, right? Yeah, and, and then even when they are, here, here's how I think about it. And I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately, anyways. Where like treatment is one pathway into recovery, right? It, but it's not. But it's not. But it's not right. the only path. That it's not the only pathway, right? So. So what are some recovery support services, you might ask? Well, mutual help organizations are, are the, the, the longest standing and most um, commonly known, right? And, and of those, uh, 12-step meetings um, are the most commonly known, although they're certainly not the only kinds of mutual help organizations. In 2020, there's been a major proliferation of, what I, of, of secular mutual help. I just say secular to differentiate that from 12-step uh, groups. But so mutual help organizations are one. Um, uh, recovery community centers are another. So these are centers that are... Um, uh, situated right within um, uh, communities, as, as, as the name would imply. And, typ- <laughs> and typically, services are provided for free. Um, so individuals that, that show up to these uh, recovery community centers don't have to pay for them. Oftentimes, states, there's state funding to pay for them. There's, a, there's other kind of funding sources. And recovery community centers are intended to help folks um, improve all the other things that we were talking about in terms of recovery, Right. So, so while they're not necessarily going to help people directly reduce or quit substances, they're going to help people obtain employment or not, if, if maybe they have a, a, a criminal justice history, it's going to be harder for them to get a job, right? Especially if they have a felony. And so recovery community centers might help them navigate um, that world. They might help them navigate the healthcare system. Um, and so there are all different sorts of ways where recovery community centers, that's a recovery support service, um, collegiate recovery programs, if we're speaking of young people. So these are programs on many college campuses um, that are typically free um, to provide a, a sort of an important social slash community space um, for young people to be able to spend time with each other, do fun social activities and so on and so forth. So, so it sounds like you're distinguishing between sort of two types of services, like treatment-related services and then re- recovery support services. And then you're also distinguishing between in-person and online. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's, exact, that's exactly right. There's a few different things that for sure differentiate treatment from recovery support services. One is treatment is delivered, for the most part, by a licensed clinician of some sort, right? Or, or you know, or an MD or, or, or what have you, right? So somebody with um, kind of professional clinical 
training to deliver that intervention. Um, and typically that intervention, um, for the most part, the most important piece of that intervention is that it reduces substance use, right? That, that, like that, that, that is, that is its goal. Um, and that, as, as, um, we have come to figure out, even when we conceptualize treatments to work a certain way and maybe enhance recovery processes in certain ways, they don't always do that. Like when we actually look at the, the research on, on mechanisms of behavior change, in fact, a lot of times treatments don't work the way that we think they do. There's other, mechanisms, right. yeah, there's other mechanisms at play, right? So that's, uh, that's an intervention. Um, whereas recovery support services um, are typically, um, another thing is usually interventions cost money, right? Um, either that the insurance co- in, the, in the United States of America, either that the insurance company is paying for or that people are paying for out of pocket, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas recovery support services are most often free. Um, if they're delivered, they, they could be peer-led. They could be delivered sort of by nobody with specialized training. Mutual health organizations are um, the most common example. Um, and there are variations on that, of course, where like smart recovery, for anybody who's familiar with that, um, the, 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 the facilitator does have some specialized training, um, but they're, and they're not necessarily a member, but they don't have to have any special certifications or licensure. They just have to have that right. special facilitator training, right? Yeah. Um, and that's but, opposed to, right, like, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous where it's entirely right. member-driven, right? And, right? and led in exclusively to like individuals who identify themselves as being members of the group and in recovery in some way. Uh, that, to- that, 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 that's right. And then, and then, again, like without getting into too much of the kind of history and nuts and bolts here, there are pros and cons to each approach, right? So with the smart recovery approach, there's more quality control right, over what happens in those meetings, but right. it, it makes it harder for them to grow, right? Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's a, it's a little, it's got a little bit more verticality to it where, some, where, where somebody has to have that specialized training and they're kind of, they, they have this knowledge that they're passing down to the members who, who are, who once they kind of accrue it, can, can implement in their own lives. Whereas uh, 12-step groups, as Noah was mentioning, like, like AA being the first and Narcotics Anonymous and there are you know, so many uh, that we, to, to even mention, right? Right, yeah. Um, but we'll just say AA as as the model, and, and sort of assume that that um, that the same sorts of principles apply. Um, there is no quality control there, really, apart from sort of the steps and traditions and s- s- some of the things there. But in terms of like how that meeting ends up looking, as folks in recovery say, like you've been to one AA meeting, you've been to one AA meeting, right? Right. <laughs> right. There are some uh, readings or, or or what have you that might be the same. But like how one looks in many ways is, is going to depend on who's there and, and all these other kinds of things. And so, so, so that's the, the meetings is one example of what I would consider to be completely non-professional recovery support services, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have recovery community centers, which the, the people that work there are generally in recovery themselves and have a little bit of specialized training. Um, but, but, but again, like they don't, they typically don't have to have like special licensure or they haven't gone to school for many, many years. Although sometimes again, they have, there are some um, exceptions there. Um, And then now a really hot topic um, are um, recovery coaches um, uh, peer and sometimes called peer recovery support specialists. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, peer recovery support specialists do have, they are individuals with lived experience um, in recovery, um, they do have specialized training and they have to get specialized certification. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I've talked to, to, to recovery coach friends about this, where, um, 
there, there is a, a certain um, yeah, sort of like light. It's like certification is the best, is the best way to put it. You just have to have a certain amount of hours and there's certain special training. Um, I would consider that though, to be a recovery support service um, because their job is not necessarily just to help people reduce substances, right? It's their job is not to deliver some intervention. Their job right, is to help people um, enhance recovery in all the different ways that's needed. So it could be to help them um, help remind them of the coping skills that they've developed in treatment or outside of treatment. It could be to help them think about all the different social um, uh, resources they have at their disposal to help enhance their recovery and change their social networks. And then, kind of most importantly, uh, peer recovery support specialists are expert at helping folks in, in early recovery in particular navigate all the challenges that come along with being a person uh, with active substance use disorders, trying to make changes in terms of all the things we talked about, employment, housing, healthcare, um, especially for people who are like housing or food insecure. I mean, it's just like the challenges are immense um, and so uh, peer recovery support specialists are really helpful there. So those are recovery, um, th those are our are, 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 uh, recovery support services as opposed to interventions. Excellent discussion on the different approaches to recovery. Uh, in our next episode, Brandon will continue his discussion, focusing primarily on technology-mediated recovery communities. It's really relevant, um, you know, considering everything that's that's going on. So, um, so definitely tune in, and uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Ad Psych Podcast. That's A D D P S Y C H Podcast uh, on Twitter. <laughs>